Chapter Nineteen of the King's Daughter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The King's Daughter by Pansy. Chapter Nineteen: The Wedding and the Wine. They would not walk in his ways, neither were they obedient unto his law. Esquire Burton's house was aglow with light. It was decidedly the most pretentious house in Lewiston, and Esquire Burton's family, with the exception of Judge Elliot's, took the lead in the village. On this particular evening of which I write, the house was more brilliant than usual, and quite a brilliant company was assembled. A wedding is pretty certain to call out all the elegance of which a family can boast, and this was the occasion of the wedding of the daughter of the house, Miss Laura Burton, and the bridegroom was Mr. Chester Elliot. Among the guests was Dell Bronson, rather, it must be confessed, to her own surprise. Dell had never been received with marked favor by the young people of Lewiston, partly because with the consistency of this present age, while it was perfectly right and proper to drink wine and brandy, it was not just the thing to associate on familiar terms with the daughter of a common rum-seller, and partly because the young people of Lewiston did not care to introduce into their society so formidable a rival as the rum-seller's daughter bade fair to be. So Dell examined the cards of invitation with somewhat astonished eyes, and speculated as to why she was invited. The first query was answered when, on passing the Burton mansion later in the day, the front door suddenly opened and there rushed out an eager young lady, followed by a no less eager young gentleman, who stood looking on with watchful eyes while the young lady almost devoured Dell with kisses. The Winthrops of Boston, guests of the Burtons of Lewiston. She could imagine Miss Laura Burton opening her brown eyes in mild surprise over Helen Winthrop's delight at the thought of meeting Dell Bronson again. There was a certain blue dress at home in Dell's trunk that had never seen the light of Lewiston. It had rushes of soft full lace around the neck and sleeves. It was exceedingly becoming to Dell, and she was very fond of wearing it. Besides, a wedding was such a pleasant place to go to, and they were so few in Lewiston. So, as I said, Dell Bronson was one of the guests. It was quite a Bostonian affair on a small scale. There were four bridesmaids, of whom Miss Emmeline Elliot was chief, and her attendant was Mr. Leonard Winthrop of Boston. Dell laughed a little over the lady's evident satisfaction at this arrangement, yet felt that it was hardly to be wondered at. Mr. Winthrop was certainly a man to be proud of, if one chose to manifest pride of that sort. That most interesting feature of bridal parties, the ceremony, was just concluded. The bride, a small pink-and-white creature, lost some of her pinkness during the said ceremony, and was becoming pale and interesting. Everybody had kissed and congratulated her, and told everybody else how lovely she looked, and how handsome the bridegroom was, and how solemn and impressive the ceremony had been, and then the tide set toward the supper-table. Thither went Dell and Mr. Nelson with the rest. The supper-table was brilliant and in excellent taste, and the guests in excellent spirits. Conversation in brilliant detached bits flashed up and down the table, till a question of the bride produced a sudden lull. "'Will you pledge my health and happiness, Mr. Tresevant?' and her jeweled hand rested daintily on the wine-glass while she waited for his answer. Others waited, too. Dell, sitting within a few feet of them, felt her color come and go, and could almost hear the throbs of her own heart as she listened for his reply. Very pale and very grave was Mr. Tresevant, but his answer was prompt and courteous. It is a most unusual thing for me to make the slightest use of the beverage in question, but at a wedding, and invited by the bride herself, one can hardly refuse. He touched his glass to hers and raised it up to his lips. 
Not a single drop did he drink, Dell saw that, she saw everything connected with this scene. But what mattered it that not a single drop touched his lips, when, so far as his influence was concerned, he might have drained the glass? Mr. Nelson was invited next, and quietly declined. Miss Emmeline Elliot arched her eyebrows to their highest, as she asked pointedly, Is it possible, Mr. Nelson, that your pledge will not allow you to wish a bride health and happiness? By no means, Miss Elliot, let me assure Mrs. Chester Elliot that I wish her all the happiness this world has to bestow. Ah, but you don't do it in the legitimate way. I should accept no such wishes as that, Sister Laura. Seriously, Mr. Nelson, do you believe it is wicked to take such a tiny little swallow of wine as custom demands, here at this private table among friends? If one were in a tavern now, or some such low place where common people congregate, it would be so different. Won't Miss Bronson allow you to do even such a little thing for society? The insinuations in both these sentences were coarse and low, unworthy of Miss Elliot's beautiful lips, but Mr. Nelson answered her with imperturbable good humor. Miss Emmeline, I am engaged to deliver a temperance lecture in the schoolhouse at Pike's Hollow tomorrow evening. Won't you please come out there and hear me? I don't feel like producing my arguments here before their time. Meantime, society must excuse me for my awful breach of conduct, and allow me to continue the social bore that I have been for so many years. The roses in Dell's cheek had been very bright during this conversation, but instead of looking annoyed there was a mischievous light in her eyes, and they only danced the more brightly when Miss Emmeline, nettled into an utter breach of courtesy, answered sharply, "'Well, you certainly have my sympathy, Mr. Nelson. I pity a man who, in this enlightened age, feels himself tied down to some little boy notion, as absurd as it is childish, about breaking a pledge. At this particular moment, the waiter paused beside Mr. Leonard Winthrop's glass and prepared to fill it. Quick as thought, the gentleman's hand was placed over the glass, and his clear, high-bred voice sounded distinctly down the table. Not any for me, if you please. I belong to that daily increasing number of young men who have tied themselves down to the little boy notion of total abstinence. How goes the work here, Mr. Nelson? Is it encouraging? Dell did not hear Mr. Nelson's answer. She was engaged in watching the scarlet flush that had mounted to Miss Elliot's very temples. Such an egregious blunder as that diplomatic young lady had contrived to make. Who could have imagined for a moment that Leonard Winthrop, belonging to the Winthrops of Boston, was a champion of that absurd and babyish fanaticism, total abstinence? Meantime, there was one of the company who evidently had no such scruples. This was none other than the bridegroom. Again and again he filled and drained his glass, until others beside Dell and the Winthrops began to grow unpleasantly conscious of the fact that he hardly knew what he was about. A return to the parlors, it was hoped, would break the spell, but Mr. Elliot was too entirely at home in his father-in-law's house to wait for an invitation to help himself at the sideboard, and too far under the influence of wine to realize his condition. If you have the least influence in that direction, I beg you will use it to prevent more open disgrace. Thus said Mr. Nelson, as he stood for a moment near his pastor, and he inclined his head as he spoke toward Mr. Elliot, who, with flushed face and loud voice, was talking eager nonsense. The pale face of Mr. Tresevant flushed slightly, and he answered haughtily, I must beg to be excused. I do not boast of sufficient familiarity with any gentleman to preach him a temperance lecture at the same time that I am accepting his hospitality. Mr. Nelson turned abruptly away and sought Dell, who at that moment was standing somewhat apart. 
I am utterly out of patience with that man, he said testily, and she answered quickly, What man, Mr. Elliot? No, Mr. Tresevant. Of the two he acts the most like a simpleton. No one expects much wisdom from poor Elliot, especially when he is tempted on every side, as he is to-night. But only think of a minister of the gospel setting him such an example, actually drinking with him, and standing aloof from him now, composedly looking on, when a word from him might quiet the fire in the poor fellow's brains. Miss Dell, do you wonder that I have little faith in a religion that bears such fruit? Dell's voice and manner were very gentle in reply. Do you really think, Mr. Nelson, that it is because Mr. Tresevant is a Christian that he takes such a strange one-sided view of the temperance question? Or is it the weak point in his character that Christianity has not yet overcome? Mr. Nelson's gloomy face cleared. He smiled down on the bright, earnest eyes lifted to his, as he answered, I beg pardon. I spoke harshly, I presume. I have some faith left in religion, after all. There are other exponents of it than the one of whom we have just been speaking. Shall I tell you of what you remind me just now? A verse in our lesson for next Sabbath, Charity Thinketh No Evil. Their conversation was interrupted. The loud-voiced bridegroom came toward them, his tones at once loud and thick. Are you admiring my wife, he asked, glancing at a fair-faced, smiling picture that hung near them. That doesn't begin with one up in the library. She is the very cream of sweetness in that one. Ever see it, Nelson? No. Then come up and see it now. It was that I fell in love with. But you needn't follow my example, you know. Too late for that. Come on, friends, and raising his voice almost to a shout. Everybody who wants to see the lady I fell in love with in her prime, follow me. Let us go, Mr. Nelson said, in rapid undertone, to Dell. The library is further from the dining-room than the parlors are. Others joined them until quite a group gathered in the library, among whom were the Winthrops, Mr. Tresevant, and Miss Emmeline. The face which they came to study was fair and sweet enough to have been an angel's. Dell looked at it earnestly and tenderly. There was a troubled expression in the depth of the brown eyes that she had never seen in the original, a suggestion that the young girl had, at some time, felt a suspicion that there might be sorrow in this world somewhere, though it had never come to her. A tender pity for the gentle child-wife crept into her heart as she looked from the pictured face to the restless eyes of the husband. How near the very edge of the whirlpool of sorrow seemed this bride to her! Would not God in his mercy interpose to help her? One of the company now discovered that the balcony afforded a delightful view of the rising moon, and thither half a dozen of them went to view the wonderful miracle of the fiery world. Dell lingered beside the picture, strangely moved and saddened by the hidden tears in those soft brown eyes. From the window came the sound of merry voices outside, loudest above them Mr. Elliot's. Winthrop, what on earth possessed you to grow so broad and so tall both at once? A fellow can't see through you, nor around you, nor over your head. Hold on, though, I have an idea. I'll occupy a loftier position than you once in my life. See if I don't. Clear the way, friends. I am going up to get a nearer view of the sky. And as he spoke, he vaulted to the delicate iron latticework that surrounded the balcony. It was a wild, brainless idea. No sane man would have attempted to poise himself in mid-air on an iron thread after this fashion, and yet a sane man, having in some unaccountable manner found himself there, would have caught at the iron pillar, clung to the lattice below, and saved himself in some way. But this man's brains were confused with liquor. He realized neither his folly nor his danger. It was all done in an instant of time, the unexpected spring, the dizzy pitch forward, 
and then the shrieks and wild rushing down the stairs of those who had witnessed the fall. Dell went swiftly and silently down to the bride. A confusion of cries prevailed below. "'What is it all?' the fair pink-and-white creature said, turning to her, and then there was plainly to be seen that look of vague trouble in the brown depths of her eyes. "'Someone has fallen, they say. Fallen where? Who is it? Where is my husband?' In the midst of which appeared at the window Mr. Tresevant's face, deathly in its pallor. Dell, he said in a low, clear tone, and Dell turned toward him, "'Take her away, his wife. Get her into the other room, quick. We want to bring him through the hall.' Dell turned back. "'Come with me,' she said, speaking with gentle authority. "'I will tell you about it.' And the fair young creature, easily led, allowed herself to be drawn into the little room opening from the back parlor and nestled into a chair. She looked up with great frightened eyes. "'I know something dreadful has happened,' she said piteously. "'But I tremble so. I would rather you did not tell me now.' I'm afraid I am going to faint. I always do when I am frightened. Won't you just please to call my husband? Tell him I want him, and he will come. Oh, I am fainting. And Dell, with a deep sigh of relief, saw that blessed unconsciousness steal over her face. She took the tiny creature in her arms and laid her on the couch. There was a physician among the guests, and for him she sought. He was not occupied, as she had supposed he would be, but came at once. We will just let her be, he said, in answer to Dell's query as to what she should get and do. It is the most merciful thing that could come to her. She will revive soon enough. Is there a physician with him? questioned Dell. Yes, two of them by this time, and no need for either. Why? said Dell, in awed and frightened voice. He is beyond their help. He struck his temple on the corner step, and when we got out to him was quite dead. There, Miss Dell, she is reviving. What shall we say to her? End of chapter 19. Recording by Tricia G.